You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Uh, Pretty excited to have everybody here. Something a little bit strange going on, which I know doesn't sound too surprising. I mean, we are strange by nature. It's called strange by nature. So you'd expect something strange happening. But Victoria is not here. There's a stranger here among us. A stranger to you, perhaps, uh, not to me. Uh, We have uh, Michael with us here instead of Victoria tonight. Victoria is off uh, once again uh, studying to become a nurse. So we brought Michael in and I'm going to let Michael uh, tell you a little bit about who he is. Hey, Michael. Hey, hello, Kirk. Hi, Rachel. Hello. I'm Michael. I'm Michael Hawk and I am a uh, just relatively recent acquaintance of Kirk and a longtime fan of Strange by Nature. So I also have a podcast called Nature's Archive. It's been running for a couple of years, and it's an interview-based podcast. And I'm starting a brand new nature nonprofit called Jumpstart Nature, launching on December 1st. So oh. that's me in a, in a nutshell. That's that's so exciting. Awesome. Congratulations, Michael. Well, thank you. And it's, it's a little bit uh, challenging, I should say, because I spent the last 25 years in the tech industry. So it's a big change for me. But I've had like one foot in the environmental space for the entire time and have really like fallen you know, head over heels, I guess mm-hmm. is the expression for insects and native plants and birds. And, oh, uh, yeah. You know, so, yeah. That's how we and get that's you. the exact kind of stuff you talk about and you and your guests talk about on your podcast. Uh, you are really great at finding really interesting people to talk to who are those experts to bring in and talk about all your favorite topics, right? Exactly. That's really helpful in learning. And that's partly how or the reason why I started it was like, okay, I love to talk to people. I love to share. I love to learn so I can have a podcast. And that's a really good excuse to get people like Doug Tallamy you know, on a show and you know, speak with them one on one. Oh, amazing. Well, also, that's just awesome. so well, great for science communication, too. Absolutely. I, I, I love using my ability and right now I'm stumbling over my words so <laughs> it probably it's not coming <laughs> up but uh, I, I love to use my ability to communicate and maybe to bridge gaps between people and that's one of the other goals of that podcast cool can you give us a quick like sort of summary of what this new organization is that you're starting up sure yeah so like I said it's called jumpstart nature and you know there's a million different nature nonprofits out there i didn't want to recreate the wheel and i thought really long and hard about like, what skills do i have what can i do that's different and what i'm looking to do is take kind of a next generation approach and use technology and good social science to help empower people and give them agency in starting their own personal journey to help the environment so so many people i talk to don't know where to start they feel overwhelmed I, like I'm just one person what can I do Mm -hmm. and I want to help people get over that so that's the primary goal and I'm going to do that through a variety of means from you know audio content and podcasts to uh, I I have a mobile app of course I live in Silicon Valley everybody has to have an (laughs) app 
<laughs> right. So those are those are a couple of the big items that I'm looking to use. And then, of course, there's just good old fashioned, traditional getting out there, meeting people, amplifying the good nonprofits that are already doing great work you know, as best I can. So cool. Cool. It'll be fun to see what uh, what comes of that uh, in the near future. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, you ready for some uh, some strange uh, nature stories, folks? Only always. Kirk. Always. <laughs> I'm I'm kicking things off this week. and. This, uh, this, um, my story actually harkens back to the past summer. You guys remember what summer was like, right? I don't know. It's pretty uh, cold. Victoria, <laughs> Victoria had a, uh, episode on the show here where she talked about natural nuclear reactors that formed underground in Gabon. Oh, I remember you, that. You remember this? Yeah, I do. That was very cool. That was um, not easy to find an image for, for our social media. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure not. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, maybe some like drawings out of like a, um, <laughs> a scientific paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that her story reminded me of another story. And I was actually going to start typing, you know, some, some notes down and thinking about it last summer. But then I, I said, oh, maybe this would make a good Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. So I shelved it. And then when I discovered our at my actual Halloween topic I used, which was the uh, vampire mm-hmm. butterflies. Yep. Uh, I realized that it was time. I got to pull this one out as well. Uh, so. I'm I'm bringing you the story of the Demon Core. The what? Week. The Demon Core. <laughs> Which okay. uh, you may be thinking, what does that have to do with nature? You know, remember on the show we often talk about nature in a very broad sense of all sort of natural phenomenon, including things people do with things from nature. And this is in a case of a story of um a strange tale of what can go wrong when we maybe don't respect the strange and powerful forces of nature. I'm, so I'm back in the summer, uh, Victoria. Good. Concerned, that, that's, but that's the idea. Intrigued. <laughs> you maybe should be. Um, <laughs> when Victoria started her segment uh, back in the summer, she was talking about how humans were experimenting back in the 1940s with creating and sustaining nuclear fission in the form of atomic bombs. Uh, we also talked uh, in the bonus material for that episode that our patrons heard. Um, so I really I want to refresh this because I realize only they heard this. Um, we talked about uh, radiation a bit, and the conversation eventually came around to talking about the fear that people have of radiation, uh, and this that fear is actually why I ended up doing a video series on YouTube you can find called Your Radioactive House, where I basically show all the viewers all the naturally radioactive things that you probably have in your home right at this very moment. And long story short, if you don't want to, uh, you know, watch all those videos. Um, if you don't want any radioactive particles in your house, you would need to get rid of bananas, uh, gr- granite countertops, smoke detectors, mm. some camera lenses, uh, some dishes, water pitchers, flower pots. Oh, um, and your house probably also shouldn't touch the soil. Uh, and you yeah. would need to completely shield your house from gamma rays from space. Uh, you basically need to enclose your house in several feet of lead. Which isn't practical, nor is it necessary. Also, Low lead levels, isn't that great for you any either. <laughs> that's not great either, right? So low levels of naturally occurring radiation are not harmful to humans. Uh, we evolved on a planet that is that was and literally is bathed in radiation. And our bodies have natural repair mechanisms to deal with the small amounts of background radiation that we encounter every day. Um, one of the things that's kind of interesting is we don't really know how much radiation is actually problematic um, because it's, you know, not really ethical <laughs> to do testing on that. Yeah. We know that high doses, you can get acute radiation poisoning 
And we know that lower doses um, for a long term can cause problems like cancers, but we're not really sure what is the safe levels from risk for things like cancer. And for that reason, experts recommend you just keep your total exposure as low as possible. Just that's sort of the safety uh, guideline there. Now, our average listener uh, is exposed to 6.2 millisieverts of radiation per year. Yes, you. That's you. What 6.2 millisieverts is how much you get. Um, for astronauts that are spending six months on the International Space Station, they are above a lot of that protective atmosphere. They get somewhere between 50 and 2,000 millisieverts <laughs> during their stay on the ISS. So quite a lot more. Um, you're sucking up something like 322 years worth of radiation in just six months <laughs> if you're on the space station. But it's interesting to note that no study has ever shown astronauts are at higher risk for cancers than the general population, even though they're getting 322 years worth of radiation in six months. So that's gives you some indication that like, you know, there's there's a an area that's still safe to, to be in there. So the story I want to tell you about today, though, is about some people that did, in point of fact, die from radiation exposure. And it all came down to carelessness and overconfidence. And I wish I could say that it was like really early on and they just didn't know better. But these scientists absolutely did know better and should not have done what they did. Oh. So oh, no. uh, Victoria had also talked about uh, the early days of the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. And once they understood that fission was in fact possible and they wanted to come up with uh, a way to make it into a bomb. Uh, and scientists initially experimented with uh, both uranium and plutonium to do that. The bomb dropped on uh, Hiroshima was uh, uranium-based, while the bomb dropped in uh, Nagasaki was actually plutonium-based. Hmm. And these first two designs were, of course, uh, dropped on August 6th and 9th of 1945. Some people don't realize there was actually a third bomb set to be dropped about one week later. But because Japan surrendered, it ended up never being used, which is probably a very good That's thing. That's awesome. Um, I will say, as an aside, it boggles my mind that the active core of these devices, like the actual radioactive material, is extremely small. Um, so if you're looking at like a plutonium device, the, the actual core that undergoes nuclear fission is only 3.5 inches across. What? Which is really small. <laughs> so this is pretty potent stuff we're talking about. That's tiny. Um, and the way it works is that the core has just enough gallium mixed in with the plutonium atoms to keep the plutonium like just far enough away from each other um, to keep it from going what's called supercritical and having sustained fission all by itself. And they basically wrap a shape charge or a bomb or that's detonated around the core. It compresses it. And now when the atoms are tightly enough packed together, it releases the magic as it were. Um, so this third bomb uh, that was unused had a plutonium core that was originally called Rufus, which just sounds really cute and sort of almost terrifying that they called That's it that. So but silly. this core, this this third core would soon get a new name. It would soon be known as the Demon Core. So researchers had this third core uh, that was now not being used. So they decided to do experiments with it, to which seems pretty reasonable. They spent tons of money to make this, and we want to learn more about it. They were still trying to understand the ways these materials behaved. Um, and these newly minted atomic researchers uh, having access to something like this was invaluable. So they were doing experiments with it. And the core had been designed to be very close to going supercritical all by itself. Mm. But the researchers wanted to know, like, 
how close had they gotten? Because this is sort of an experiment. Like we wanted it close, but how close did we really get? Seems important. So, yeah, I mean, you do need to know that. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to get too close. Seems super safe. <laughs> oh, oh no, Rachel. <laughs> Wait till you hear how they figured it out. Oh. Um, <laughs> Uh, they want to know, like, uh, you know, how close were they to critical? So what they did is on August 21st, 1945, uh, physicist Harry uh, Daglian, I believe is how you say his name, was experimenting with the core by placing blocks of tungsten carbide around it to act as reflectors for the escaping neutrons. So this is radioactive. You know, neutrons are escaping. And if you put tungsten carbide around there, some of those neutrons get bounced back into the core where they can start to... Um, you know, create more reactions. So it's it's kind of the same as packing the um, the core tighter. It's just by putting stuff around it that reflects those neutrons back in. Does that make sense? Yeah. So <laughs> he was um, putting these reflecting blocks around there. And um, this kind of has the same effect of adding more plutonium. And they would pl- oh. place a brick, take measurements, place a brick, take measure- measurements. And you could do that carefully. But he accidentally dropped one of these bricks <gasps> directly onto the core. Oh, no. And it immediately started to glow blue run. as it ionized the air in the lab. You run and away. And pretty much instantly went super critical. Of course. He quickly flicked the brick off it, um, but it was too late. Within seconds, he was standing right there. His body had absorbed an, a fatal dose of radiation he actually died 25 days later Ugh. of acute radiation poisoning. And that, that brick was only on there for seconds. But that's all it took. Yeah. Now, you would think at this point people would have learned their lesson. No. But no. Uh, just months later, researchers were again working with the same core. And this time they were not using bricks. They thought maybe that's not a good idea. So they created a special shell that went around it in two halves, like a reflector shell this time. Uh, The core was sitting in the bottom half and they could raise and lower the top half very carefully while taking measurements. And so this seemed like a good idea to them. And you would think they would have some sort of like fancy machine to do this careful measured raising and lowering. No, this is like the 40s, right? 40s, 50s? No, yeah, you'd be wrong. No. No, they're doing it by hand. They put a thumb-sized hole in the top half of the shell (laughs) and a researcher would stick their thumb in it and hold on to it a bit like half of a bowling ball and like and just start move it up and down with their hand extremely bad idea now dropping that and fully enclosing the 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 core in a reflector was super dangerous us and they they realized that so the protocol was to have some like wedges in between the two halves so they could not fully enclose the core well researcher uh lewis uh, slotten uh was a bit of a show-off he preferred to remove the shims and simply put a flathead screwdriver between the two halves and move it up and down like a lever. Uh. Uh, and he said he could get even closer to criticality this way. Um, and he absolutely should have known better. Famously, Enrico Fermi uh, was visiting the lab and saw him demonstrate this technique. And he was quoted as telling the researchers that they would all be dead within a year if they continued to do this. Uh, it turns out he was right. Wow. On May 21st, 1946, just six months after the previous accident, while showing the technique to his replacement, the screwdriver slipped. <gasps> there was a flash of blue light, a feeling of heat, and a metallic taste in their mouths. Um, he quickly used the screwdriver to flick the top off the shell, 
and stop the core from more uh, supercriticality. Uh, the burst of radiation was estimated to have lasted only half of a second. Oh my goodness. He was dead within nine days. <gasps> so the question that people wanted to figure out is how much radiation did uh, these people absorb? Mm. Uh, in the first accident, uh, it's thought that uh, Harry absorbed 2,000 millisieverts. In the second, uh, the second guy was thought to have absorbed 10,000 <gasps> millisieverts. I think if I said sieverts, millisieverts for both of them, 2,000 millisieverts and 10,000 millisieverts. Oh, so just some math no. here to compare to the average uh, citizen like like you guys um, who absorb background radi- radiation. Uh, Daglian was exposed to 322 years worth of radiation in that half second or so. And Slotin uh, was exposed to 1,612 years of radiation <laughs> in uh, like <laughs> half a second. So what I think is interesting about this That's is when fine. I started off, I mentioned earlier, astronauts in the ISS can absorb 2,000 millisieverts of radiation if they stay up for six months. That's the same amount that the first guy absorbed. But it's and over a longer totally fine. period of time, not in a, you know, yeah. three second period. Exactly. So it just goes to show like how, you know, because again, I think you know, we're talking about nature, uh, radioactive elements, um, you know, and radiation from space. These are things we all encounter every single day, you know, of our lives. We just don't even know that it's happening. And they literally don't cause any problems because our bodies have evolved to deal with that over all this time. But it's it's really interesting that when that comes very quickly, the effect <laughs> is quite different and our bodies absolutely cannot handle that. So in the wake of these accidents, uh, the core of plutonium obtained the nickname the Demon Core. Mm-hmm. It was actually too badly damaged from going supercritical to actually be ever used in a weapon. And it was essentially melted down uh, and recycled into other projects. So it d- no longer exists today, which is like a pretty good thing. Um, so that's, you know, the story I wanted to tell you this week about this strange part of nature that, uh, we need to, in some sense, not be as afraid of as some people are, because it it is a a naturally occurring thing that in the amounts that we would normally encounter, uh, really are not necessarily dangerous for us. But when it becomes uh, very concentrated, uh, like many things in nature, you know, like eat too many mushrooms, you can get sick, get bit by too many spiders, you can get really sick. Like there's these things that we can handle in small doses, but when we have a large, you know, dose all at once can prove fatal. I have so, a dental uh, appointment my... next week, Kirk, and I have yeah. a whole set of x-rays lined up. Is that you safe? You should be good. Okay. You should be good. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to bring my Geiger counter to the dentist someday and see like, <laughs> can I pick up, can I detect that with the, I don't know if it would detect x-rays. I'm kind of fascinated. I know. Um, my sor- and yeah, of course, I have a guy who counted yeah. that kind of person. I knew um, you had one, sorry, but it's my still sources, funny. <laughs> yeah, my sources this week were the National Council on Radiation Protection and Measures and Wikipedia. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, uh, Michael has got something strange to share with us as well. Yeah. 
Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. All right, we're back. And for my strange thing, I guess, let me start even backing up a little bit. One of the lessons that I learned from the last couple of years being a little closer to home is that there are some incredibly strange animals in our yards and neighborhood parks. And I'm not talking about your neighbor, by the way. I mean, so, I, I want to highlight fair. something that's close to our homes, though, and that pretty much anyone listening could see no matter where you're at. So today I'm profiling genetic engineers. Okay, Ooh. these aren't your typical engineers. They're only about <laughs> two millimeters long. What? And they've been refining their engineering capabilities for almost 115 million years. Oh, so no. what you're saying is that my friend who went to my friends who have gone to school for engineering, they should go for a little longer. I think they need some more time. Yes, just to refine <laughs> okay. it. That's and not quite set ready. Yet. You'll hear. Yeah, you'll hear exactly why that is here in a moment. So they use these powers, these little two two millimeter genetic engineers. They use these powers to induce others to actually grow food and shelter for them. And they've also Ooh. played a vital part in the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Magna Carta, and even compositions by Van Gogh and Beethoven. Ooh, I'm Fascinating. intrigued. So yeah, who are these engineers? And if you haven't guessed it by now, they are the approximately 132,000 species of insects that can induce plant galls. G-A-L-L. There you go. I love now, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about written documents. I'm like, oh, I got it. I know where he's going. Oh. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of was guessing from the background of your Zoom, not going to lie. Yes, I have a big old <laughs> plant gall behind me. Oh. Uh, so the just real quick, the reason why I brought up those documents and compositions is because plant galls can be a source of ink. And that was discovered many, oh. many hundreds of years ago. Is that where gall ink? That, it's gall ink then. Yeah. That's where it comes from. Yes. Yes. That's so cool. So if you've never seen a plant gall, these are growths on plants that, as I said, can serve as food and shelter for insect larvae, and they can occur on almost any part of a plant. So the leaves, stems, even fruit or flowers, and the roots hmm. of a plant can be galled by certain specialists. And some of these galls are cryptic and tiny. Others are large and really colorful. Some look like strawberries, like the one behind me, uh, peanuts, mushrooms, or just other strange shapes, fuzzy sticks, whatever the case might mm -hmm. be. So galls are often somewhat inaccurately described as a tumor on a plant. And I say mm -hmm. inaccurately because if you think about a tumor, that's often kind of an uncontrolled cellular multiplication uh, or a random right. growth sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's controlled by the plant itself, not by an outside force. Yes, uh, and exactly. So galls are actually very structured and they're consistent in their growth patterns. So I usually, if somebody asks me, well, what's a gall? I say, well, it's a structured growth on plant tissues that was induced by an insect to aid them in their life cycle. Mm. So you may see other growths on plants. Great succinct de description there. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that's, that helps you understand the difference between that and a burl or, you know, something else you might see on a mm -hmm. plant. 
So these galling insects are uh, varied. They can include midges, fruit flies, sawflies, moths, and wasps, which I think is strange and amazing. It's just like so yeah. many different insects have figured this out. And even yeah. arachnids. What? Really? There's some mites that oh. can do this. Yes. Whoa. Fascinating. Yeah. And to be just completely accurate, fungi figured out galling even before the insects did. So go back 150 plus million years and there's evidence of fungi galls and even bacteria can be gallers. That's so, crazy. Given this huge array, though, I wanted to focus at least a little bit and talk about sure. snippid wasps or the oak wasp oh, yeah. gallers. Ooh. And I think a lot of people, yeah, when they hear the word wasp, they might think of a yellow jacket or a paper wasp or something mm-hmm. that's kind of big, maybe a little bit scary and stingy. Uh, but these gall yep. wasps, they're tiny. If you're lucky enough to see one, you might even mistake it for a fruit fly. They're that small. Like I said before, just a couple millimeters. Mm-hmm. And these wasps, they no longer sting. So they're one of the many, many wasps that don't sting. And instead, they have specialized ovipositors. And this is where things really start to get wild, at least in my opinion. Ooh. So what happens is these wasps time their emergence and the ovipositing with the budding of their host plant. And in the case of sinipid wasps, the, their hosts are almost always oak trees, but there are some roses and tan oaks that they can take advantage of as well. Okay. So this timing that I mentioned with the budding is critical because there's a really short period of time where the buds have what's called meristematic tissue that have undifferentiated cells. And mm, okay. okay. Yeah. So the way you think about this is kind of like a stem cell that can be turned into many different things. And somehow these wasps and other insects as well have figured out how to manipulate these cells to grow galls. So how do they do it? Okay, well, yeah. the wasp will insert its egg into the bud at just that right time. And when it does so, it will also insert some hormones that modify the genetic expression of the plant. And it's believed that, just again, to cover all the bases, that some species maybe take a slightly different approach. I mean, it is nature after all. There's always exceptions. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. the larva itself might actually have the chemical reaction that induces the gall right, in some right, cases. Right. right. Uh, and you, as you can imagine, it's really hard to study this. So... These relationships yeah. are so finely tuned that a given wasp species might only be able to induce a gall on like one host. They're specialized to that extent, or maybe <laughs> a small number of closely related hosts. And the process is also so precise that the galls they produce are going to look the same across you know, all of the different instances. So one species will always create the same looking gall. Well, there's one exception to that as well. There always is. That. Yes. So the gall then, it grows really quickly, and inside of it are little chambers where the egg can be, or the larva, uh, the egg will hatch and the larva will come out. And um, in some cases, there can be actually multiple larvae inside of the gall. Now, it gets stranger still, of course. So some of the sinipid wasps will have two generations a year, not too uncommon for insects. And the spring generation takes advantage, of course, of spring growth and the fall generation for late season growth that a plant might have. You know, you need those buds. However, nearly everything about these two generations is different. So the spring generation might be a bisexual generation of males and females, whereas the fall generation is unisexual, females only, that reproduce through parthenogenesis. Amazing. Wow. The morphology of all of these are different too. So even the males and females look different and the spring and fall generation can look different. And the galls themselves huh. look totally different too. 
And this was figured out before DNA barcoding existed. So the biologists who figured this out, I don't know how they did it. Like that would be a great story. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. How itself. on earth did you even like you look at something that looks completely different? It's like, ah, that's the same thing. What? I have no idea. So, so I know what they often Amazing. do is they will they will take these galls and try to rear the insects that uh, are inside sure, yeah. of them, but yeah, you still have to figure out that this thing that looks totally different is the same. Anyway, so as if figuring out that and having all these different classes of genetic engineers isn't strange enough, again, it's nature, and there's an entire group of parasitoids and inquilins that have figured <laughs> out how to specialize on galls. Oh, so if yeah. You're not, if you're not familiar with a parasitoid, I call it the evil step-sibling of a parasite. A parasite's <laughs> not going to kill you, but a parasitoid will kill you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah. most of the gall parasitoids are actually also wasps, and many are also in the same family, the uh, cynipid wasps. And they have evolved oh, to insert their eggs into existing galls, and they can even probe around with their specialized, really long ovipositors to try to find a larva inside or find the right <laughs> chamber to put their own egg. And wow. Now, Wait, when you say to find the larva, are they trying to, like, just put it in the same area or actually, like, inject it into the actual larva? I think both cases exist from what I've read. Man. Whoa. That's wild. Now, the galls, of course, it's an arms race. They have figured out to uh, create empty chambers to try to throw off these parasitoids. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they also make thicker walls, and there's other cool things they do. Now, inquilins, I don't know if you're familiar with an inquilin. No. <laughs> so my, my friend, yeah. uh, Dr. Marav Vonschak, she calls them an uninvited guest. So ah. you can think of them like an uninvited house guest that comes and they eat all your food. Oh, rude. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, they'll come in and, uh, and take away the food. They don't intend necessarily to kill the host gall, but they might accidentally by eating all the food. Sure. Mm -hmm. And again... Given its nature, there's a mimic of galls as well. Of course. In fact, it's not just a mimic. There's an entire family of scale insects that have evolved to look just like galls, and they also prefer oak trees, which is just hmm. wild to think about. Oh, wow. Some of them look like marbles. Other, others look like a thickened leaf. You know, there are different morphologies for galls, and these scale sure. insects have figured this out too. And I've been lucky to find wow. a couple of those in the wild, and they trick me every time. So, okay, fascinating stuff, I think. But galls are absolutely one. They're one of those things where when you start noticing them, you seem to find them everywhere. So not just oak trees. Oh yeah. Even the invasive Canada, uh, Canada thistle, which by the mm. way is not from Canada, uh, no. has a common <laughs> galler. It's a fruit fly. So you can okay. find those when the Canada thistles are out, and. If you're interested, there's actually even an event every year called Gall Week that encourages <laughs> people interested in nature to get out and document their galls on iNaturalist. And I can share that information with you if you're interested. Oh, my gosh. Cool. Absolutely. I love iNaturalist. I think it's a really cool citizen science project and like a great way to get people involved. But I didn't know about Gall Week. That's so cool. Yeah, and to your point on community science, the last thing I'll add is there are many species of galls being discovered all the time. There's a lot of uh, galls that are known to exist, but 
have not been reared. So there's a lot of work to do. And I even discovered a previously unknown gall in my own backyard. So this Whoa. is one of those things where if you wow. start to get interested in cool. it, you who knows what you're going to discover. Absolutely. And my references for this today, uh, there's a wonderful book called Plant Galls of the Western United States by Ronald Russo. And it's kind of like a field guide. Mm-hmm. And I found a really interesting article in the Tropical Conservation Science Journal that talks about plant richness as a surrogate for galling diversity. So that's a, actually interesting to read. And I've had a couple of gall guests on my podcast as well, and I use some of the information they provided. Uh, Dr. Doug Ptolemy, and there's a website called Gallformers, the co-founder, Adam Krantz, um, for guests on the podcast. Oh, so so cool. Very cool. Uh, I do have one question for you. Certainly. Did you get to name the gall that you found in your backyard? Well, uh, no. So the process for this, to actually properly document it, would be... I would need to rear it and I would need to send it to an academic who could actually do all of the detailed microscopy to identify what it Mm. is and describe it to that level of detail. And there's Ah. only like one or two people that do this type of work. And they are backlogged for for like years so oh yeah it's uh yeah i I don't think it's going to happen i tried to rear it though but i was not successful in rearing it so i'll try again if Mm. they show up again next year i can't wait to hear that's so cool thank you michael okay with that we'll go to the break and rachel will be next cool Welcome back, everyone. Uh, So we're going to actually start by joining a researcher way back in 1989. Maybe both of you remember this period of time. Um, Mm -hmm. I I was not alive yet, so. (laughs) Don't say that, Rachel. I feel so old when you say that kind of thing. That's why I say it, Kirk. (laughs) Okay. Um, So we're joining a researcher, Jack Dumbacher, uh, on his trip to Papua New Guinea. Uh, he's in search of some birds of paradise. So he's using mist nets. Kirk, I know you're really familiar with mist nets being a bird bander um, to catch the birds that are there. Um, But there aren't the only kinds of birds that are in the forests of Papua New Guinea uh, that he's looking for in particular. So there is another bird that shows up. Um, this bird is black and orange, uh, about, it's a medium sized bird, about like the size of like an orchard Oriole, about nine inches long. Um, it has a russet orange that covers the body and the back, but the head, the wings, the tail, and the upper breast of the bird are black. Uh, it's got a strong, pretty cool. Yeah. It's really cool. (laughs) Just wait. Um, it's got a strong <laughs> black beak and has dark red eyes. Uh, some of them have more like chocolate brown or like brown eyes. Um, but Jack probably, being, probably depends on age. Absolutely. Nerd. Sorry. Yeah. Well, duh. That's why we're here, Kirk. <laughs> uh, so Jack being the researcher, he's removing the birds from the nests, um, in order to make sure that the birds are unharmed. He's not wearing gloves or anything like that. He gets a few cuts. Oh and my things. God, Rachel! What? I have to take this off my list now. 
Excellent. I love this story so much. Uh, so he gets a few cuts and things from the birds as they scratch at him because they're trying to get away. There's this weird thing that's moving them from this thing that they're caught in. They think they're about to be eaten. I mean, yeah. I would bite and scratch at things uh, if that were happening to me. Um, and he notices that like the cuts and the scratches kind of hurt a little more than they should. And at one point, uh-huh. he accidentally touches his mouth and his lips and tongue kind of tingle and burn after that. Uh, now, this isn't unknown. Uh, scientists have worked with these birds in particular in, the muse- in a museum collection. And they noticed that after handling and working with them to display these birds, uh, there was a numbness or burning in their hands uh, from working with these birds. So amazing. So after talking with the locals, uh, which honestly, of course, they would know about this bird. They're the locals. Right. Uh, they tell Jack that this particular bird, ah, yeah, that's not good food. It's not really good. That bird isn't good for anything in particular. Just let it go. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so Jack collects some feathers and uh, was able to send it to John Daly at the National Institute of Health, who happened to be a chemist, uh, who actually, on a side note, in, I think it was 1968, was the person to discover this thing that I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, It turns out that this little bird in Papua New Guinea has something in common with some very small frogs in South America. Uh, The Petui bird, which is what I'm talking about, is one of the only poisonous birds in the world. Yeah, poisonous birds. It's not there's, venomous. There's a handful. There's poisonous. a handful of them, but this is a pretty cool one. Yeah. So this was. There were a handful of birds that were poisonous. Um, even back in Audubon's day, I was reading a little bit about the Carolina parakeet uh, while researching for this uh, episode, um, but. They unfortunately don't exist anymore. And I wanted to talk about the Petui because when I heard about it, I was like, hold on, the what? (laughs) And I learned a little bit more. So not only are they one of the only handful of poisonous birds in the world, but their feathers, skin, and tissues actually contain, hold on, retracotoxin, which is also found in little frogs in South America called poison like dart poison frogs. Dart frogs? Yeah. Uh, which actually the brotracotoxin was the was discovered by Jim Daly in 1968. Oh, John Daly, I'm seems sorry. Like a, yeah, seems like a pretty good guy to uh, send those feather samples to then. Truly, truly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now, this isn't something that the Petui birds actually produce themselves. It's actually a form of kleptotoxism uh, because yeah. they actually eat something called a meliorid beetle, uh, which is super toxic and contains brachacotoxin. Um, and it actually, like, they're able to take that toxin and put it into their own bodies to make themselves poisonous. We're not exactly sure. This was just discovered. There was um, a paper written about it in 1992. So it's still being researched. And we didn't get the particular 
toxin until early 2000s. So it's still being researched right now. Um, But so patchouli birds actually also eat seeds and fruit. They don't just eat the these little beetles. Uh, But what is really curious that scientists are trying to figure out is they're trying to figure out why these birds are eating and using and having poison. They don't need this. Um, <laughs> like they're not super brightly colored, like depending on how much, uh, they have, uh, they can be a little redder in coloration oh, rather than being a more chestnutty russet brown orange. Um, so they don't so there's really a correlation between the, their, the color of their feathers and how much of this they've ingested slightly. Yes. Okay. So, oh. but they don't necessarily warn predators from that, but there are a couple hypotheses sure. why these birds have uh, Ooh, the protocotoxins. Yes. Is one of them for um, like keeping parasites out of their nest? Not out of their nests, but out of, off of them. Off of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So there are some parasites that have actually been shown to avoid batrachotoxin in um, some studies. So they think, so scientists who are studying this actually think that that's one of the reasons why they partake in this kleptotoxism. Uh, so that way they're protecting themselves from parasites. So they're not being eaten alive. Cool. They do live in Papua New Guinea, which is a pretty tropical forested area. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they also, the other hypothesis that could be actually, it it's not exclusive. You know what I mean? Like both of these hypotheses have merit and could be reasons behind this behavior and why they have this toxin. Um, oh, absolutely. Is to also help deter predators. So even though they're not okay. super brightly colored, it is a hypothesis that it does help prevent predators from going after them because I mean I wouldn't eat a bird that was in those sort of warning colors if I if like my cousin Ted like died from eating that thing you know right right does this Uh, bird have known predators it does uh I mean it's not a large bird generally speaking um they have a number of potential predators um, including uh, a lot of the snakes, including like brown tree snakes and ground tree pythons and such. Um, they are avian predators in New Guinea. Um, those huh. species have been shown to be um, irritated by this particular toxin. So okay. it's absolutely an uh, easy uh, correlation to make. Between the two. Sure, it could be some sort of a deterrent there. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, local hunters wouldn't eat that, won't eat that bird. It's um, because <laughs> well, there it's you go. There's toxic. a deterrence right there. Uh, it's very big deterrence. Otherwise, like, hunters in that area do hunt songbirds of similar size, uh, but they don't go after this particular bird because they taste bad and make you numb and potentially kill you. Um, there you go. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Super fun. Well, what a fascinating species. Yeah. So that's what I have for you all this week. 
Um, my sources include Australian Geographic, Wikipedia, the National Institute of Health, and uh, a McGill article by jo Joe Suarez. Uh, they were all very fascinating reads and actually were super helpful in learning a little more about this bird. Uh, so that's I believe awesome. that's all we have for you this week. Thank you, that Michael. Is, let's, Michael, thank you oh, for, for coming joining. on. Thank you for having me. Everyone um, check out uh, Nature's Archive podcast if you have not. Yeah. Do you have any? So. Do you have any social media or things that you want people to follow you on, Michael? Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, I I'm on most of the normal <laughs> social media platforms as Nature's Archive at Nature's Archive one word, and my new endeavor Jumpstart Nature is at Jumpstart Nature also one word. Awesome. We'll make sure to link those in our social media posts and such this week. Definitely go check those things. Go check out his new podcast. Go check out Jumpstart Nature. Um, until next week, everyone. Thanks for coming. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.